0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark
1: Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, it looks like Elixir 1.15.0 RC2, that's quite a mouthful, I guess, has been dropped recently. This is a small one. There's a couple of little things, but what this signals to me is I hope a solid release of 1.15 is on the horizon. So it looks like there's a new little feature to allow marking functions as generated in docs chunk. Do you know what that means? I was looking at that and I was like, what am I reading? Yes, from the changelog, it's not entirely
0: clear. My guess was that you have some functions that are generated at compile time. Maybe you're downloading a set of data and generating code from that time zones comes to mind. I know it's pulling in data tables, but I don't know if it's actually generating functions. But I imagine there are times when you have a function that's generated and it would be handy in the docs if you'd say this is a generated function so that I don't go looking for the
1: code as something I can modify. That's my guess. Where is this code? Where is it? It's hidden. Yeah. And among other things, there was a couple of bug fixes around multi-letter sigils. Which is a new, exciting feature coming in the next release. And next up, automated UUIDs with human-friendly prefixes got
0: blogged about by Dan Schulzer. If you ever worked with an API like Stripe, where through the API you're referencing a resource and it has a prefix on it, like a C C T underscore for an account, things like that, this blog post walks you through how to do that with an Elixir system with Ecto and making it really easy. And that's the cool part because... If you use UUIDs, which is already well-supported, you have these really long numbers that are separated with hyphens, and one UUID is completely indistinguishable from another one. You can't tell if it's for an account or for an item. You just can't tell. So what this blog post does that I thought was pretty neat is it converts it to be a base 62, so that actually compresses the text, so it's not quite so many digits, and it strips out the hyphens, and then it puts on a prefix, like account, so you can be a little bit more human-friendly with these IDs, so you have an idea of what it's
1: actually linked to. So that's a cool one to check out. Yeah, very interesting. So next up, we saw a tweet from Sean Moriarty talking about decision trees getting the ability to be compiled to NX. Looks like he uses an algorithm from Microsoft which compiles trained decision trees to tensor operations. It gives almost 70% speed up over the XG Boost C API, and you can use the compiled function in an NX serving without any additional work. It's basically one con- function call to get 70% speed up production grade model serving. So I said a lot of words there that I don't fully understand, but I do understand a 70% speed increase, and that's good stuff.
0: Yeah, I know there are certain situations where Your an application might be dealing with decision trees. I expert systems kind of comes to mind. That's not ML, right? It's not like a neural network, but it's more like we have this decision tree path that we want to be able to go through, and just being able to speed up that kind of a path sounds like it could be really helpful for those types of systems. And next up, just continuing on with something else, Sean Moriarty was talking about. He teased us in a tweet showing just an image, and it's just a screenshot. And it shows a terminal with EXLA underscore target equal metal. So it appears that there may be some early work going on making NX target the Apple metal machine learning hardware in the M1 and M2 chips. So that's really cool for people who have Apple or Mac hardware, and that's not all of us, but it can be really helpful if you're doing local development and you either want to do training or you're just doing development and you want accelerated performance just while you're working on something locally that you know will be running on the cloud, will have a GPU, but you don't want it to suck terribly when it's running locally and just be like super slow. So that's really interesting, very exciting, because uh, I know a lot of the stuff I've been doing with ML has been locally.
1: More access to GPU power is just better. My favorite part of that screenshot is that in the background, he has an unregistered sublime text window open. (laughs) Just reminds me of the good old days. Next up, Phoenix Live View 019.2 and 019.1 have been released. Small little fixes. Mark says he never saw any of the problems that those had, but I sure did. And we kind of just sat around and waited for those fixes to come out before we could deploy 019. So it sounds like there were little problems with the way that JavaScript was targeting attributes in a certain way. And if you had a certain library, you just couldn't deploy this or you'd be dead in the water. So happy to see those fixed. Props to the team that maintains that and has been getting those fixes out quickly. And next
0: up, I saw a blog post from Haleth where he talked about how much memory is needed to run 1 million Erlang processes. And it's a really in-depth breakdown on how this all works and his testing methodology and everything. I just want to highlight the point that he gets to at the very end. If you just take unoptimized code, and you just want to see how much RAM is this going to take to do a million processes. The original code approach was almost four gigabytes of RAM to support and model that many processes. So then he did one pass, which the main improvement there was to the code, and that was changing it from using task async to spawn. So just taking out that other layer of abstraction, going more to the primitives of using spawn for the processes, and that dropped it down to 2.6 gigabytes which is a significant improvement. But then he went further and optimized the beam using certain flags and things like setting a flag to use compressed ETS tables. And that brought it down to 0.93 gigabytes. So that's under one gigabyte. So like that is a big change. Now, most of us do not have systems where we're even dealing with anything close to that level of scale. And so four gigabytes of RAM really is not that bad. Like even if I took no attempt to optimize it, Four gigabytes is pretty decent for a million concurrent processes. But, you know, getting it down to like less than one, dang, that's sweet. I think this article is a great resource for any projects that are looking to reach that level of scale or are really wanting to just get under the hood and see how said so they can tune their beam and to get that extra little performance, especially around memory usage.
1: And next up, there's a new security library created by Michael Lubis, the man behind Paraxial I.O., which aims to prevent remote code execution. This library is called Exploit Guard, and it looks pretty neat. It looks like it's built on top of the Recon library, and the Recon library is a tool for tracing production systems. So what it does is it looks like it, probably among other things, runs real-time tracing in your production system watching for binary-to-term calls. So there's plenty of use cases for this. I've used it myself, but what's not typical is when that Actually creates a new function, so if it notices something that's deserializing through binary to term and creating a new function, you can actually configure it to either alert you about it or just simply kill that process and stop that potential new function from even being executed. So pretty cool stuff coming out of Paraxial. And next, Jose Valim has continued
0: creating videos on Twitch, and one of the recent ones of special interest was a Q&A of type systems with Elixir with Guillaume Duboc. And I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. I know it's a French name and I know it's the French version of William. So I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that. But it's a, a two hour long video where they talked about types and a possible gradual type system for Elixir. It was interesting to hear them talk about set theoretic types and the difficulty of thinking about the way OR works because it's actually different The way we talk about it in set theory than it is in the way we talk about it in English, like the English or. And perhaps that's an indication that there's a bit more for us to learn before we can actually use a type system like this and have a a clear understanding of how it's going to work. But uh, talking about these Twitch videos, it can be a little bit hard for us to talk about some of these videos specifically and, and share links to them because some of the previous videos have just disappeared. And by the time we actually had our episode be released, the video was already gone. So can't actually promise that this one will be there. The video is recorded on June 8th. But that's okay. Because if you want to be in touch with these things, you want to follow these things, you can follow Jose on Twitter, where he announces them or follow his Twitch account. But thankfully, there is a more persistent interview about the latest in Elixir and type systems. That was uh, recorded on the Elixir Wizards podcast, where they talked about the future of types in Elixir. So I've got a link to that in the show notes.
1: And last up, Swift chart support has been added to LiveView Native. And if you might not know what that means, this is a library by Apple. And their headline is, construct and customize charts on every Apple platform. So it's just a uniform way to build charts that will be nice and fancy on every single Apple device. It looks like work has started for that, and for those who want to play around with it, Brian Carterell explained that while the API is not yet locked in, they do plan to create some documentation and content around it. It looks like they're making great progress on that. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build
0: highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Tim Greenmore. Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the invitation and been looking forward to this conversation. I saw this tweet online that said, I heard from a contact this week that they switched from React to LiveView and drastically reduced their scaling challenges. And I had to reach out and learn more about this process and what that's like. So, of course, you know, we have to acknowledge that we are biased. We love working with LiveView. And that's one of the reasons I moved to LiveView is to get away from all of the things in JavaScript that I, I was using, you know, I had the spas, I had all of that, but I really liked the LiveView approach. So I would love to learn from you about your experience moving from React to LiveView to better understand kind of the problems that you were facing as a team, and maybe if you can share any tips or tricks that you guys had along the way that other people who are interested in a similar type of move could learn from, that is really exciting. But before we get into all of that, I would love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Oh uh, yeah thanks
2: for asking. So I live near Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, my wife Natalie and I we have five kids uh, we a couple of years ago purchased an old family farmhouse and we've been renovating it and realizing that this is going to be a lifelong project but it's a it's a good project to get outside and and uh move my hands away from the the computer so so enjoying that part of life right now and In addition to home life, we're involved in our local church and just a lot of kids' activities. So, and then in terms of work, uh, I've been with Headway for a few years. Headway is a team of about 40 designers and developers and product strategists. Currently, I've been working as part of a team that's designing and architecting and building a mobile application. The aim of the app is to unify communication amongst anyone who might be on a construction project. And so challenges that we're solving right now are pretty well documented when it comes to communication apps, things like push notifications and real-time data, activity feeds. Uh, there's just a high level of complexity in the app. It's been a really great opportunity to be challenged with that and also to look ahead to certain things that the Elixir community is, is buzzing about around ML and AI And consider how those tools might help solve some of the problems that we've been encountering with this communication app. Prior to this project, uh, I've been a part of a number of teams. We've served outside of construction. We've done some work in supply chain, logistics, fintech, healthcare,
0: quite a variety of industries. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience coming to Elixir. So, Headway, is that the name of the consultancy? Correct. Okay. And so I imagine as a consultancy, they probably didn't start with Elixir and they probably deal with a number of different technologies. So how did you end up coming into using Elixir at all? Yeah. So me, me personally, around 2016, it's probably the case for
2: a lot in the Elixir community, came from Ruby and I came across it through mentions online, blog post, perhaps a podcast. And Rubyists, who I had learned from and and appreciated their community contributions had started to explore Elixir and we're speaking really highly of it. I was initially very intrigued and quite hooked. And at that point looking for an opportunity to use it. And so from that point around 2016 until today, I've been able to apply Elixir to a number of different problems, but I'm still using Ruby react uh, headways working in the mobile space as i mentioned prior and so generally our our tech with headway is uh, is ruby elixir react for the web
0: and then react native likely in the form of expo in the mobile space yeah i was curious about the mobile like if it was like a like a react native targeting cross platform or like swift ui you know straight up targeting each platform individually i don't know just curiosity
2: yeah Yep, and it's it's been an Expo project and and we've been very happy with Expo. It solves some very challenging problems. So I certainly would recommend Expo if you're looking at doing cross-platform mobile development in the, with React Native.
1: Well, so I'm really curious about this problem that led you from React Frontend to Elixir. What what application or what kind of problem were you guys solving? What is the what is the premise here that we're gonna be talking about?
2: Birdseye started as a an attempt to solve task management. And as an as a consultancy, as an agency, engaging with a variety of different clients, you end up with tasks that are spread out across different platforms. Asana, Trello, GitHub Issues, Jira, uh, <laughs> you name it, right? You just end up with tasks that are spread out. And being able to prioritize your day and plan your day when those tasks are spread out is challenging. So the, the idea was, let's try to aggregate all that information into a single place where I can plan out my day, but not likely, not just my day, but probably more a week's worth of, of work. And I don't need to necessarily go beyond that week. I just really want to think near-term what my highest priority items are, identify them, and then get started on, on my day. And so that was, that was, and still is the overall goal of Birdseye. And we started building Birdseye as part of a, a Team Week project in 2018. Uh, it was quite entertaining to look back through our Git history and see the starts and stops that we've had along the way. Uh, but that first attempt in 2018 was to build an Elixir backend with a React Spa as a front end. And early on we were happy with the production that we were getting from the team we were happy with the opportunity others who weren't familiar with elixir and or maybe weren't familiar with react the opportunity they had to to learn and to grow with those tech as we got into it though and started to actually ship some of this internal project work one of the founders of headway pointed out that this is really slow the ui is is stuttery. Things become jumpy when I'm dragging and scrolling, it just freezes on me. And so, okay, so then we were looking at what is the breaking point? Why why is this feedback happening when none of us are experiencing it within the dev team and we realized that just had a lot of tasks? He just has hundreds of tasks to the point where, okay, that breaking point seems to be around 200 and he was three, four, or five times that number. Wow. <laughs> right. He's just testing the edge cases for you guys. <laughs> right. Exactly. So we had this prime situation where there's internal user we have direct access to. We can test, we can explore, we can investigate, and we'll get immediate feedback. It sounds
0: like that the bird's eye application, you said it started off as a team project kind of thing. It sounds like it's the kind of thing that you guys would want internally for yourselves because, you know, you've got designers and they want to use this system and you've got project managers or they want to do this and the developers want to use this. But then you have clients on the outside of your company and they're doing their own thing and you want to be able to pull in the stuff that they want to assign to you there.
1: But they use sticky notes. How do you integrate with that?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so is
1: is is that where this came from? Is just like,
0: we're trying to solve our own problem.
2: Yes, We're we're trying to personally, uh, establish a, a work habit, a process that we like individually, but also one that as a team, we can be more productive and, and we don't have to be constrained to client requirements, or we don't have to ask the client to be constrained to headways requirements.
1: In the past, I've worked at a consultancy and it was always a dream to be able to build our own project, right? So you've made it. <laughs> you've done it. You're actually doing it. Like none of the consultancies I worked at ever actually got around to doing it because we're always busy working with clients. Cause that's where the actual money comes from. Right. And so congrats for making it
2: <laughs> right now. We, yeah. There's so much more, so much more to do with it. That's the interesting part
0: is one feature leads to another
1: congrats getting started at least.
0: Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's more, more the case. So I think we've got a, a good picture in mind of what it is that you guys were trying to do, and so you you had a, a an Elixir backend. Was it a GraphQL or REST API? What was it connecting that to the SPA? Yeah, it was it was a an absence uh, absent backend, and then an Apollo client, uh, graph client on the on the front end. Then you have this situation where the developers like, hey, this is working awesome, really great, smooth experience, and then you get to that user your co-founder business, you know, boss guy where he wants to maybe, maybe it's all of his tasks or he's just wanting to get an overview of what's going on with the the company and the bigger view. And you start to see this just is, it, it's not working. It's stuttering. It's, it's jerky. It's interesting just that you're running into that situation there, but it is awesome that you had that person in-house, right? That you, it's not like the client who's having this problem, Right. That was a luxury that we've we had and and
2: we still have, quite frankly, as as we do feature development to be able to test it internally. It's lower risk um, while still helping meet a need as we improve the product.
1: So how far along were we at this point when you guys decided something needed to change? 2018 toward the end of 2018 is when
2: we were at our team week team retreat and initialized the repo. Right. So 2018 until Roughly two years later, not quite, but roughly two years later, the summer of 2020 is when we realized, okay, this, this isn't working. We've tried a number of different JS libraries to support lists and dragging and dropping and, and sorting logic. It just wasn't working. And I, I want to be careful that I don't make a claim that it can't work. I, I suspect that there is a way to do it and to make it work, but we were just running in circles with different libraries. And, and as I look through the history, there had been 19 different contributors to Birdseye, right? So if you take 19 developers who are contributing at least a single commit, if not many, and you have this churn with front-end libraries happening, the library, not just a single library going through different versions and improvements, but multiple different libraries that are being tried and tested, And ended up failing.
1: This is your test bed. It's an internal application where you can experiment the new latest CSS styling (laughs) library, right?
2: It is. It very much is test bed. And and but then at some point we just decided we need to step back and consider: is this this shouldn't be a breaking point? We we expected two challenges with this app. One was the ability to sync tasks across third parties. Just the challenge in maintaining state across third parties um, aggregating that information and and that's been a challenge but one that was expected and then the second one the ui we expected it to be challenging but not in this regard we just didn't think it would break with this amount of data and so that caught us off guard and it led to a lot of churn again and trying different libraries and in developers coming and going from the
0: project so how was this idea proposed to say, maybe we should just scrap the entire front end and start over on the front end with LiveView? Because that, that's pretty dramatic, right? It sounds like it wasn't uh, like the knee-jerk reaction. You tried to do a lot of things uh, to solve it within the language and within the, what, what you already had, the code base, and you just, that wasn't working. So how did that proposal or, or that shift begin? Yeah. So the the joke around the
2: development team and around Headway is you need a rewrite. You need to start <laughs> over, right? Tongue in cheek, that's typically not the answer, but we do like to, to joke about that. And so this was, this actually was a rewrite that happened and it's it's stuck and it's proved to be successful. And the way that it came about was myself and a coworker, we just spiked on it. So we, we didn't want to sink weeks, we wanted to sink maybe a couple days into, can we validate that this is actually going to solve our problem for us? We've, we're have we going to spend a couple days trying yet a different JS library, so let's just pause that cycle, try something different, and see if we can't verify it solves our problem. Within a couple days, we had essentially tested that moving away from React Spa toward a very basic live-view implementation, we could render not just a few hundred but thousands of tasks on screen we could drag and drop without stutter and we were happy with that result enough where we could say let's continue down this path and so from the end of july until i I couldn't find the exact date but I, i recall sometime in october we had done the complete rewrite and abandoned the react spa in favor of of a complete live view implementation
1: well i'm curious what the team was feeling about this. Like, did the, did the front end people feel attacked? Like you had just replaced them. Was there cheering and rejoicing at the end?
2: <laughs> I, so I think there was generally there was hesitancy because the team, like I said, there had been 15 contributors, or rather 19 contributors to bird's eye. And I think there's a little bit of hesitancy. Like, is this just another thing we're trying to solve this long lived problem? and if it could prove to be effective the team was willing to see it because we hadn't solved the problem right and so there was a sense of relief that for some i think that we had solved the problem finally there was still a, a sense of uncertainty around well what does this mean and there still is today around live view react or any live app architecture for that matter if we're looking in the rail space what does this all mean and thankfully, there's a place I think we've likely all seen there's a place for all of it it's not doesn't have to be a one size fits all solution to every single tech problem we solve. Um, but it's certainly good to have options that aren't so javascript heavy.
0: So I guess I have two questions that this this makes me think about. like one, you have your in-house user who had the hundreds of tasks. What was the user acceptance like just saying? You know, how does this experience? What does this feel like? It's very quick. Uh, The ability to ship something and have
2: have a power user test this app after they had experienced the deficiencies of the prior implementation. It was a oh, I can I can move my tasks around. I can interact with this without having to wait or see my browser freeze. And so there wasn't there wasn't pushback or hesitation at all. It was a sense of relief that, oh, we had solved this problem, quite frankly. So then there was moments of, well, this happens so quick. Where's the verification? Where's that sense of feedback? Because I've now moved from waiting for confirmation in the form of the app catching up to my request to it just happened instantly. And that was a little jarring.
1: It didn't work. It's fake. So you had, you had to add in that timer, that sleep timer, like put a loader bar in there and like.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. So once we got over that hump though, it was adopted. It was, it was all, all good. Um, and we were as a development team free to continue to move about the live view
0: implementation. So it sounded like this initial live view effort started in 2020. Is that right? Correct. So that's all before Chris McCord and the new Phoenix liveview streams came out. So this is all just keeping these lists of data in memory, is that right? Yeah, so exactly it was it was fetching
2: by day. so I might have hundreds of tasks. Um, I wasn't always rendering all of those tasks, but when when I did that's when it would start to fall down. And so we we didn't have bottlenecks in our live view implementation when it came to Memory or, or fetching or writing any data. So I when when Chris McCord released uh, To Do Trek, I believe is the name of it. Uh, you know, instantly I'm interested in how did he solve this? How did he solve that? And and it's a fantastic reference app. Combining uh, what he exhibits in that app with what we've learned in Bird's Eye and the uh, app task syncing that we've we've implemented. Uh, it would make for a very improved experience, even from where Birdseye is today.
1: So you guys have not implemented streams in Birdseye? We haven't yet. Well, I'd be curious if, if, when you do, if something changes or if it just feels the same.
2: <laughs> <laughs> My expectation is that it's going to help clean up our code base. It's not necessarily going to improve the experience for the end user, not with what we see today but it will certainly help make the app more maintainable.
1: And, and maybe like backend resources drop by some percentage. You're not holding so much stuff in memory.
0: Yeah, I would expect that too. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit more about the challenges that you may have encountered in, in making this change. Like, was it a difficult change? Was it like, uh, you know, getting your mindset around... The, the live view way because it is different than the React way. Like there's still this whole reactive rendering is happening. Like when I change the state, it gets re-rendered. But like the actually way you write the components, the way you actually think about it is different. So was that a challenge for uh, trying to make this transition? It was a challenge. Yeah, I had looked through the
2: history and at one point we had, I think from the beginning, we had Redux as part of our React SPA implementation and we had uh, removed Redux and moved more toward more heavily into Apollo and just React context. and those are familiar patterns. If you've worked with React enough, you're familiar with those solutions for state management and coming into LiveView doing something as maybe simple as rendering a modal or editing different multiple forms within the same LiveView that all front different resources in your application. We had to learn some of that and and come up with solutions on our own. I, I think the community had some examples of it, but we we also had to adopt or adjust some of those examples. And so it was it was challenging to come up with repeatable patterns at that point in time to solve some things that we had already solved in the React space and the React community has solved many times. If you fast forward to today though, the team that's working on birds and has been for the last few months, they've found spinning up a Phoenix one seven app to be a fantastic point of reference. And so if we're looking at how should I organize this piece of UI, how should I pass state from A to B, looking at core components module, it is a really great point of reference. Honestly, it's answered. The majority of the questions that we otherwise had been stumbling over for, for the initial implementation.
1: I can get on board with what you're saying. I feel like a lot of times, like when one seven was first released and there was a bunch of changes to the generators, one of the first things I did was use all the generators and look at them because it's almost like they're serving as a set of standards. Like we wouldn't generate it this way if we thought this was a bad idea. We generate it this way because we think it's a good idea. So I generate all the files and I'm and I'm studying it and I'm like, well, why did they do it like this? Okay, so they're doing that. All right, I'm going to start building things this way.
2: So it reminds me of rail scaffolding, but it provides more confidence that the generated code is something I can not only use and extend, but it's very good practice. It's something that I can apply in a pattern that I can apply to other needs within the application in a way that I didn't find real scaffolding to to do.
1: Yeah. One thing that I can appreciate about the new generators is a little bit of a tangent. Like we're not here to talk about the generators, but (laughs) I really appreciated how they started generating component usage rather than generating markup. And so somewhat recently I went in and I styled the core components and all my generated code just suddenly started looking beautiful. And it's like, It's actually a fantastic feeling for you to go in and say, Mix, Phoenix, Gen, Live, this thing. And what pops out is almost completely usable and nice looking. Yes, it's true. Like, yeah, I I get what you're saying, though, that the generators are not
0: generating all the divs and classes. They're generating components, like function component references. So if you've styled them in core components, then you're going to get a lot of what you already expect. And uh, honestly, when I first started using core components, I jumped in a little early, a little too early, like with the first release candidate. And then they completely revamped it after that. So I had to like redo my my approach. But what I loved about it was, yes, I can just go in and update the styles in there and keep all the code and just extend it. Oh, like they have an input for core components. I just want to have a custom input that does these other things. And I could just add that. And and you can only really do that with generated code. Right? You can't do that if it's a library or it becomes a super nasty library to maintain where you're generating you know, like overriding classes and maybe overriding the markup. I don't want this whole layer of divs in here. I want to do it, structure it differently in that way. Generated code makes a lot of sense.
2: Yes, I, I agree. I In talking with the current Eye team, there's been three, three developers who have been working on it for, like I said, a, a few months now. And. Two of them were completely new to elixir completely new to it and one new not only to elixir but new to web as a platform it was mobile android developers is primary language and so it's been interesting to see how how quickly they've adapted to some things other things that have been a challenge to them in the elixir space with the language itself but also with phoenix and with live view and the different patterns that are that are introduced but Phoenix Seven. they called out in talking with them last week how that has been a big help to them. They can look at generated code, just like we're saying. So it's been helpful to see not only experienced developers in Elixir benefit from that, but also somebody who's new come in and find answers through through something like a generator.
0: I am curious if now that it's kind of settled, right, people, the, the project's established, has there been any i don't know a uh, feeling of threatened i guess from the 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 javascript front end side because it's been an experience i guess i've seen in other places where when if you're proposing live View, then you're replacing my job and there's a little that can be a threatening experience um, it doesn't have to be that way right like but that it can come across that way i'm just curious how that challenge that human aspect was navigated yeah that's a great question i i haven't
2: gotten the impression that my teammates who are primarily react developers who simply really enjoy writing react i haven't gotten the sense that they've felt threatened by live view or or anything in the rails community that's kind of mimicked what live view is doing i think it's more of a a question they have of but i'm really productive like what i know of react i can be very productive in building ui with this And so i'm hesitant to give up that predictable productivity for something i don't know that's the bigger question that i've been trying to answer is how could we help somebody who's first and foremost react developer explore live view explore elixir because i think there is a there is a bridge to be built there that would help that the react community understand what it's all about evaluate it for themselves and return to React, but certainly know what it is that you are passing up. Have have another tool that you can evaluate and consider as you're building out UI, and uh, and that in the form of Live View.
0: One more area I want to make sure we touch on is anything that you've learned in this process that you, as a team or you personally, just the company, like what have you taken away from this? That are tips or guidance that you could share with anyone else who might be considering or or thinking maybe this is the right path for our project?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a few different thoughts that come to mind. One is that what the current Birdseye team has shared is how testing improves greatly when I'm not having to test a separate spa and a separate backend. And then testing with LiveView gives me uh, a certain level of confidence that I otherwise struggle to find when I'm testing separate backend and front end applications. And so I think the current eye team has moved the stability of the app forward in a, a really big way because they've dedicated to writing tests, to getting to know testing in live view. And, uh, and that's helped stabilize the app as well in a way that we otherwise hadn't. Testing is certainly one that you need to consider and the ability to do what is close to an end-to-end test in a single language. Um, we've seen that people, developers who are coming from different languages and different backgrounds, we've seen them come into an Elixir code base and be productive. They found it enjoyable. Some have even found it as a preferred language that they would like to continue to work with. And so I, I don't think there's a problem in getting uh, a lot of developers, most developers, to adopt the language it's just they need a little bit of time to understand the language if they're coming from some other place we're talking about primarily this internal project birdseye that is is public but has primarily been serving internal uses we've also written a bigger enterprise innovation team app with elixir as the back end and the experience of deploying that inside a corporate level and enterprise level cloud was surprisingly easy. And so we've been able to experience sort of, you know, both ends of a spectrum when it comes to Elixir. And the client has been receptive in both situations. There hasn't been technical limitations in deploying the Elixir app. There hasn't been adoption hesitation from the development team. There's been excitement around the performance and scalability of elixir and all of all of the many benefits of the language itself. And so I I think there's just fewer and fewer arguments why you wouldn't use elixir or consider it when it comes to again not only on small scale but in in an enterprise setting.
1: You touched on testing there and I feel like that's a big takeaway for me if I was ever to like reflect on my experience on back end or front end in elixir Front-end testing is proven hard historically for me, so hard to the point where many teams don't even adopt it because it's just not worth it. And live-view testing is a whole nother thing where the teams embrace it, and there's good coverage, and it's easy to write, and it's actually beneficial, I feel like.
2: Yep, absolutely. Completely agree. It is time-consuming to write front-end tests,
0: and that's not the case with live view. And I do love when you're dealing with a live view kind of thing that you're not having to test the validation code that's separate from the back end right like the front end has its own level of validation code and then the back end has to reinforce that so you're kind of duplicating that effort and with live view, you just you flatten that right so you only have the one implementation of this is the server's implementation of how to do validation of this code and this data. And that that's super helpful. So I thought it was interesting. I hadn't really thought about the testing aspect as being one that you'd bring out. And I also thought it was interesting. You pointed out the, you had a different scenario where it sounded like an on-prem kind of deployment. Well, maybe not on-premises, but in another enterprise's cloud, another customer's cloud, where you don't have direct access to it anymore. And that that's an interesting one that you had a good experience with as well.
2: Yeah, I know it's unrelated to birdseye, but... in it- in building experience through Birdseye, Eye, we were able to uh, recommend Elixir for that other project, and that was a a lengthy build, a three three year lengthy build, and to be able to deploy that as a first Elixir app in somebody else's cloud without really any issue was a pretty pretty validating point.
1: Well, Tim, thanks for sharing all of these. Potential non-existent pitfalls and the things that you've learned and the advice you've shared. Is there, what's next for you guys? What's next for the project? What's next for the company? What's what's going on next?
2: Yeah, so we Headway has been looking to lean more into Elixir. As shared, we've historically been more focused on Ruby um, and certainly React will continue to play a role both in web and, and mobile. But we'd like to lean more into Elixir and we're planning to launch a a sub brand named parallel in at some point this summer that'll be very much focused on elixir and so our goal is to help help founders and product owners build complex systems but do so in a way that's simple in a way that other honestly other languages and frameworks don't and so we're we're looking to help help uh, improve the startup environment through through Elixir as our tooling. And then we've ex- extracted uh, from Birdseye in, in Asana adapter, which is very specific, but working with Asana's API has been pretty challenging. And so we'd like to finish extending some of the functionality of that library and then be able to share it with the community I'm anticipating that there may be others who could benefit from from such a library.
1: Nice. Very cool. I always appreciate it when companies take the time to kind of like ex- make the 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 tooling that is like not specific it's not the secret sauce to what you're doing but they try to like generalize it and make it available i think that just helps everyone so i appreciate that
2: yeah me too we've certainly benefited from uh, such a generous community in elixir and in ruby and react community for that matter but elixir has really stood out so looking forward to starting to give back to some of that
0: well tim if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, maybe they have a question, they want some advice, I don't know. But if they want to follow you online or follow the project, where should they go to do that? Yeah, the
2: be- best spot to find me would be on, on Twitter. You can find me at Tim Greenmore on Twitter, or you can find me through headway.io. And I'd be happy to converse about anything that you might be, might be considering. New to Elixir, experienced in Elixir,
0: product questions, happy to find time and and meet up. Awesome. Well, Tim, I've really enjoyed talking with you. What you guys have done is really neat. And you're not like trying to be flamboyant about it. You're not trying to be challenging and saying, you know, speaking down on some other technology, because that's not what it's about, right? It's about this is the right solution for us and our problem. And it solved our need. And hey, it might be helpful for other people too. Yep. That's well said. That's, that's the hope. Well, I would love to hear in the future how that goes with your transition to streams and anything else that you do with the project. So anyway, best of luck. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been a joy talking with you both and look
0: forward to communicating with you in the Elixir community. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.